0: For joining uh i'm jj walsh this is seeking sustainability live today we are talking with gastronomy raider melinda joe based in tokyo and we will be right back so stick around and thank you for joining this is seeking sustainability live number 190. Woo! <laughs> 10 more and we hit 200. I can't believe it. It's amazing. Uh, We are talking today about food, amazing food and drink, and a little bit of travel around Japan with Melinda Jo. Thanks so much for joining, Melinda.
1: Thank you for having me, JJ.
0: This is awesome. We are friends on Twitter for a long time, um, but it's the first time to virtually meet you. Thank you so much for joining, talking about food and drink in Japan.
1: Yeah, thanks. I'm super happy to be here.
0: That's great. So you started, well, you grew up in like the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, You also lived in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about your backstory before you came to Japan?
1: Yeah, so actually I'm born and raised in Louisiana, so I'm from the South. Um, and of course that's like a little bit funny for people because I'm Chinese-American and of course I was like one of the few Chinese people like in my town. <laughs> so, um, and then I went to school at UC Berkeley and um, I lived in the Bay Area. Um, I spent some time in London um, and uh, also New York before coming to Japan.
0: Well, so how long have
1: you been in Japan now? How many years? Oh, it's been, so I was, I got my permanent residency like five years ago. Um, so it's been like more than 15 years. I mean, it feels like a thousand, but, um, (laughs) but it's been like more like around 15.
0: And you've really made some great connections. You're writing for a bunch of international publications. Um, You are often interviewed about food and drink issues and culture in Japan. So you have a lot of positive influence on the Japanese food and beverage industry. So I really appreciate all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for saying that. Um, Yeah, I mean, this work is a privilege, of course, Um, and, um, I've been, I've been working as a professional writer since like, I guess maybe 2010. And, uh, you know, I'm based here in Tokyo, but actually, um, for the most, for most of my career, I have been traveling, um, around the world. So in fact, I really only spend like half of the year in Japan, but of course, um, the last year has been a complete change. I haven't left Japan since last March.
0: Wow. It's such a big adjustment. I think especially for travel writers, food writers, you really have your wings clipped, don't you?
1: Yeah. Um it's been a it has been a tremendous adjustment and um you know in so many ways that are both negative and positive. I wouldn't say that it's been um a totally bad experience. I think there have been a lot of good things that have happened um as a result i mean just even being able to stay this long in japan um with my husband is probably the longest we've spent together since we got married (laughs) and i don't know if he will agree but i think it's a good thing um but also you know just having more time to spend in japan and um, explore my city again in a different way
0: that's great um it's nice to hear and to see your articles and trying to find a different focus during coronavirus um we're going to talk about a lot of the support that you're giving the industry in terms of a lot of industries like sake industry and stuff which are really struggling through the pandemic to kind of make you know survive over this time when people just aren't going out eating and drinking right
1: yeah, I mean, the entire hospitality industry is suffering quite a lot. And when people think about hospitality, first, they probably think about restaurants and bars and hotels. But we really have to think about this in terms of like all the way down the distribution line to the producers and how um, and how in- intensely in- affected they have been. Yeah.
0: You had a recent article. You do an excellent column for the Japan Times um, called "Kampai Culture. And you had a great article recently about sake brewing in 2020. Hard times are going to be with us for a while. Can you mm-hmm. introduce some of the ideas that you talk about?
1: Well, um, you know, this has been such an extraordinary year for everyone and um sake breweries have really felt um a lot of negative impacts, but it has forced them to the change the way that they work in a lot of ways. Um one of the one of the things has been the uh, timing of uh of their brewing, like, you know, um lengthening shortening um and mm, they, for the companies that have relied primarily on or heavily on exports they've taken a tremendous hit um likewise places that have generally get, like gotten a lot of tourists uh, to come to visit and then like sell there that's been really hard yeah um, but of course like you know labor. because like i mean sorry just yeah you know just like because like so many restaurants are not really you know selling then they're not able to you know buy as much sake and that ends up being an issue for the rice farmers as well
0: yeah we've had a few um, people working in the sake industry in the series so far and Mm -hmm. uh, you also introduced uh, who's doing taste with the toji that was one of your articles right
1: yes yes Simone she's wonderful yeah Yeah. Uh,
0: and you've also introduced uh, Stephen Lyman talking about shochu. So shochu is oh, another yes. industry right. hard hit, right?
1: Well, I mean, really, everybody um, working in the food and beverage industry has been, um, you know, adversely affected by this.
0: Yeah. Uh, when we talked to Stephen, it was surprised to me how shochu is really a domestic product um whereas sake is really kind of embraced by the export market and has much more of a foothold but shochu is really 80% consumed in Japan i was really surprised about that
1: yeah shochu has still yet to take off really in a significant way um overseas compared to the success of sake which has been really growing like so much since like 2007
0: and one of your recent articles in Kumbai Culture, you were talking about hot sake, and mm-hmm. uh, I, that's perfect for this time of year. Can you introduce some Absolutely. of your takeaways?
1: Oh, um, well, I guess like for hot sake, you know, the biggest thing is that there's such a misconception and not only um, among people overseas, but also, you know, in Japan, like this old image, of hot sake being just what is the cheapest thing that they heat up really high so it can mask, like, you know, all the flaws. But in fact, that's not the case. I mean, um, people have been heating sake and enjoying it warm, like, pretty much ever since they started making sake. And, you know, one of the greatest things about sake as a drink is this extremely wide range of temperatures at which it can be enjoyed. Um, And I think a lot of people are, are very surprised to find that, there are certain styles of sake that actually are best served warmed and will even, and are even like, you know, produced with that in mind.
0: Yeah. Um, I think your, your take is perfect. Sorry, I have a little cat visit here. Um, your take oh, is I perfect. love it. I love it. <laughs> this is Lonnie. Lonnie wanted to say hello. You're going to say hello to everybody. Thanks, Lonnie. Hi, Lonnie. Um, about hot sake, because it, like you said, it, there's an image that it's it's just for cheap sake, but you were talking about drinking piping hot sake, and there was some nice flavors with that, and then um, you prefer warm sake for others, so I found that really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, if you think about, like, again, you know, going back to this idea of how sake does have this wide range of temperatures at which it can be enjoyed. Um, If you really want to drink something super hot, then you probably want to look for something that is going to be quite dry to begin with, like a honjoso-style sake, um, that can take a lot of heat. But, like, um, anything that is more delicate, it's not going to do well at those high-temperature ranges. But a lot of sakes are um, a lot of the kind of style of sakes that I like, you know, tends to be really nice when it's just a little bit warm. So above body temperature.
0: Yeah, I love that image. And I haven't tried this myself yet Uh, in an outside rotenburo and it's super cold and maybe there's snow all around and you're in a really hot bath drinking hot sake. That's like one of my bucket list things I want to (laughs) do.
1: Oh, you if should you, definitely do that. You should yeah. definitely do that. Because, like, you know, i say, like, even when you're describing that image, it sounds great, right? And it makes you feel good. Um, and, um, you know, like, I don't think that you have to be in that situation to enjoy hot sake. But if you do have the opportunity to do that, then it is really fun. I mean, I don't think it necessarily enhances the flavor, but it certainly leaves you with a very good memory. Yeah. And, you know, like at the end of the day, that's what like really good food and drink do for us, right? They break, they, yeah. they help us have these great memories.
0: Absolutely. And you also introduced like a sento in Tokyo where they have craft beer. That also sounds great.
1: Oh, yeah. Did you see that? Um, I did. I don't know if it, I'm not sure if it's up yet. It was um one of the, it was one of the updates I did for Condé Nast Traveler. Um, yeah, it's, Really, really tiny cento in um, Bath bathhouse, I think. Yeah, called Bathhouse.
0: I've got a picture of it now. Yeah, looks great.
1: Yoyogi Hakiman, Yoyogi Uehara area. I think it's it's a great idea. I think it's a cool idea because, I mean, primarily it's a bar. Um, They serve premium um, craft beers a lot from Japan um, and a couple from um, other countries as well. Uh, they make a surprisingly good curry <laughs> and um i don't know it was like just such a funny It's just a funny thing to see like it's a very random kind of um grouping of of offerings as if you will of craft beer curries and you can take a bath there as well I but love um it. they have I love bath. It. yeah it's fun i mean they have two baths and uh, i think they rotate men and women um Yeah, every other week or something like that. But it's very, very small.
0: Yeah, when we were talking about sustainable culture in the Edo period uh, with Asby Brown, uh, he was talking about how efficient Sento culture is in terms of water usage, uh, reusing the same energy that it takes to heat up the hot water. So there's so many wonderful sustainable effects as well as a bit of history which is worth preserving but sento culture of course is is on the decline in japan so it's it's great to highlight that there are future benefits in terms of energy saving water saving and having that community culture as well in terms of food and drink. so i hope we can uh keep some sentos alive in japan
1: (laughs) oh definitely i think that like the sento is such a a fantastic and very and just uniquely Japanese kind of tradition. And um, what I really love about the Sento is how, when you go there, like class lines really dissolve. You know what I mean? Like when you go to the Sento, you see people from all walks of life. And um, and and I I feel like it's really important for us to have these kind of spaces and to remember like the importance of gathering in this way, you know, like coming together just to have the single purpose of like relaxing and having a bath. Um, and so for these, like the younger generation or the new generation of center owners that are trying to continue to make it relevant in other ways, for example, by turning it into um, a more conventional sort of modern gathering space, like a bar, you know, um, I think it's a great idea. I don't think that they can all survive that way, but it's one way.
0: Yeah. Uh Su- Sukiji mom has joined from YouTube. Thank you Sukiji mom. She says that sounds so nice. I think she was talking about uh in the rotenburo drinking hot sake. Yeah, I think that sounds nice too. I want to find it. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, I'm, yeah, you can definitely do it in a lot of places for sure. Yeah.
0: I, I don't know why, maybe because I had small kids uh, when we would visit Rotenbudo, and so you're not really going to take care of the kids and drink. Um, but now my kids are older, so maybe it's time to go and explore and drink some sake in a
1: rotenburo. <laughs> yeah, for sure, JJ. It's your time. It's your time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Embrace it. Plus, rotenburo is outside, so if you're social distancing uh, in an outside bath seems like the way forward.
1: Yeah, uh, see, like, it's a win-win situation.
0: Um, Another, where you've got so many interesting articles I would love to talk about. Um, But let's talk about um, sake reviving in Tohoku, because this is the 10th year since the disaster. Mm -hmm. And you've done a few articles, even right after the 211 disaster, um, talking about how the sake industry was really hard hit. I found that really powerful.
1: Oh, yeah, it was, um, gosh, I mean, you know, if anyone who was in Japan at that time can speak to the, I mean, how shocking it was, and, um, in you know, we are still, we it's still completely unresolved, we are still dealing with the after effects of that, um, and, like, even though, you know, people like maybe you and me, like, don't have to deal with that, then we're not confronted with that reality every day, like, yeah. Very, it's very much still an issue for for many people who are living up in the Tohoku region yeah one
0: of the organic sake uh, industry people that you introduced Awashima san um, in Shizoka yeah, he's, doing, he's doing organic sake but also Nidahonke Honke oh, is in
1: Nihonka Fukushima, fantastic. right yeah I think they're in Koriyama. Mm. Can you tell yeah, us about they them? Pioneers. They seem amazing. They are really cool. Um, Honke was actually one of the first sake breweries I ever visited, and I had the opportunity to make sake with them for a day like as one of as part of their like sake making experiences that were open to the public. And um, yeah, they're really pioneers in the way that they have approached um, like a natural um, you know, natural farming um, for rice, but also the way that they have um, approached employment, and what I mean by that is like they have made a commitment to try to um, to provide stable full employment for their staff, and that is uh, actually an, anom- an anomaly in the sake world. Or traditionally, it has been an anomaly in the sake world, and and, and frankly, in all of like hospitality as well in Japan, um, it's still uh, not, I would not say it's the standard. Um, and I was so impressed by what they have done. Um, they really, uh, yeah, They when you go there, you can really feel how sincere they are about all of this as well. And they've done a lot of innovative things. Like they've just been experimenting with this kind of cacao-like product. I mean, when I say cacao-like, it means like it kind of tastes like chocolate. Um, but it's made from, I believe it's,
0: Oh no! You've frozen. Okay, you're back. Yeah, sorry. You froze Mm -hmm. for a minute. Oh, sorry. No, no. But yeah, they've
1: been doing a lot of experimental things, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to see how they're going to go forward. But they've they've just gone from strength to strength since the first time I visited them, which was more more than ten years ago.
0: Wow, that's great. I'd love to visit. Um, I'm also I'm really impressed by their 2025 aim. For all of their rice to be made oh, you without froze. pesticides. Sorry, you
1: froze. I'm sorry. Oh, so I'm not sure.
0: Did I freeze? Okay. So, uh, Nita Honke has an aim by 2025 to have all of their rice made without pesticides or chemical fertilizers and to create in their local area a self sufficiency for uh, creating rice for their area. I just, I love it. These are sustainable aims that you don't often see publicized. Like this is part of their branding, Mm -hmm. which it should be for so many businesses. So it's so nice to see this.
1: Yeah, actually. So just starting in, I believe the end of 2019, there is a group of perhaps 12 sake brewers um, who have this mentality as well that um um are trying to if not 100% grow their own rice because it's a lot for a lot of breweries that's not possible then to um to support local rice farming in their region and like grow like some of their own rice um I forget the name of the association but I can send it to you later so this is a growing movement um and there is a lot more awareness that is around this you know around this topic now which is a super good thing I'm really happy to see it
0: yeah, that's wonderful to see. Um, you also introduced a female toji, so there's there are some women who are heads of the sake breweries. Uh, you introduced Hiroko Yoko Sawa in Iwate. Oh, yes, uh, yeah,
1: you know what?
0: Mm-hmm. Really nice. Um, and you yeah, a I bit love about, this sake. Yeah, tell us a, a little bit about her if you can.
1: Oh my gosh! You know, today was so long ago. It's
0: a long time. Yeah. I'll, I'll remind you. So I'll remind you from your blog. You say um, she's a petite woman, um, but she has large, inquisitive eyes and soft features, and she is one of the f- thirty women female tojis in Japan. Um, it's wonderful that you spend time in your articles to highlight some of the women who are leaders in these kind of traditional male dominated type of traditional, um, industries. So it's so nice. Yeah. I mean, it's really
1: tough. It's tough for, for women in the industry. Um, but like, thankfully since, um, since that time, which I don't remember exactly when that article was written, but it was several years ago. Um, the number of female toji or or master sake brewers, has risen um however i believe it is still fewer than 50 people um you know among more than a thousand master brewers in japan so there's still quite a lot of ways there's still you know a long way to go but um but yeah there there are some people who are you know getting a lot of recognition some women who are getting a lot of recognition in the industry which is great news and also some younger people getting into it as well
0: You also highlighted a female sushi chef recently in one of your articles. Um, Uh, Chef Fumi Takeuchi, Uh, she is the chef of Sushi Take. yeah?
1: Right, yeah, yeah. I recently visited her, I think in November. Um, Yeah, she's doing a great job. She's a tough lady. She's a really tough lady, and um, she did. I, I met her for the first time, and she did mention, you know, how she doesn't want to be known. And of course, this makes sense too. She doesn't want to be known as a female sushi chef. She wants to be recognized as a sushi, an excellent sushi chef in her own right, um, as she deserves. Um, and she did describe that, like you know, she, she did describe some of her early experiences and how like a few times she wanted to quit um and i thought that was like really interesting because she was so candid (laughs) so immediately um but uh yeah i admire i admire what she's doing a lot and the sushi was great
0: oh good 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 yeah I've, i've heard great things about her and of course um sushi is one of the things that you mentioned as one of the reasons you wanted to come to japan initially and you have a real passion for good sushi. Um, you had a great interview I recently. I think
1: that was more of a okay. joke.
0: Is <laughs> <Okay. laughs> it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you had a great interview recently with CBS News talking about the vanishing art of sushi. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
1: Um, yeah, they reached out to me because they were doing the story about how, um, in particular, a lot of independent sushi restaurants were disappearing and um yeah basically like the whole kind of mid-range of sushi um has been like getting you know like uh has been getting smaller and smaller and smaller and so we're left in the situation where we have two extremes of like the really very high-end um extremely expensive of course like amazing quality sushi restaurants um and then like the proliferation of really cheap, um, like a lot of the like kind of kaiten sushi places and um, and people who are selling sushi, selling fish at a far too low price. Um, it's a sad. It's a really sad trend, and like I don't know what the answer is, but um, but yeah, we were just discussing some issues around that.
0: Yeah, because it is like you said in the interview, it is an art. And it is uh, the authentic way that sushi is made handmade, not made by robots in the cheap uh, sushi chains. Um, it is a real art performance. And you were talking it about how, how they pra- the chef would practice in front of a mirror because the way that he performs in front of the customer is a part of the experience. I thought that was really
1: interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that sushi is such a fascinating art form, a fascinating genre, because it's so intensely personal. Um, It's, it's so deceptively simple, because when people think about sushi, they think that it's just raw fish on rice. But In fact, because it's so seemingly simple, because you don't have like anywhere to hide as a chef, like you really see so much of the person's personality come out in the way that they approach sushi and the way that they deliver it to you. Um, And, you know, and when you think about uh, the way that it is served, like sometimes at, at high end sushi restaurants, it's served directly from the sushi chef's hand to your hand. And like what other kind of food can you imagine being so, you know, so intimate? Um, having such an intimate experience of, it's it's really cool. And I always feel that sushi chefs, like I've interviewed so many chefs and like, um, and especially in Japan, sushi chefs tend to be the most interesting. They can be really philosophical. They have like such distinct personalities and they really let it show. Wow,
0: that's really interesting. And I think it's so important uh, to, it's difficult because there's no way they can compete on price, right? So they have to compete on quality of experience, added value of the atmosphere, of the experience, of their expertise, right? So hopefully the customer can be a little bit more informed in the future to appreciate that and not just choose sushi by price. Because I think in the yeah. in the uh, talk show, they were talking about the McDonald's of sushi chains is kind of taking over. And people have no mm-hmm. interaction with the chef whatsoever. In fact, most robots are making a lot of the sushi. And it's just about the cheap price and convenience. Mm-hmm. But what mm-hmm. the sushi places are offering is is really special. and it's it's part of culture that's kind of, could be dying out if these commercial versions kind of take over right
1: well um yeah and the same could be really i mean you could apply the same logic to like any kind of restaurant right like any time that you are making all of your decisions based on price and convenience then you have this like phenomenon um but like But I I think that this is something that that we are thinking a lot about more, um, you know, during this pandemic all over the world, because like, unlike us in Japan and like and in a lot of Asian countries, um, like people are not able to leave their homes. They're not able to dine out at all. And we are so lucky here that we are not confined to our homes and we are able to still, you know, in a limited way, support the restaurants in, um, in, you know, in our areas and And go out and have a good time, too. Um, so I think that uh for a lot of us, we are starting to or people are reevaluating their relationship to restaurants and like really thinking about what it means, and like not just you know using that simple matrix of price and convenience, and does it taste good?
0: yeah. I think we we talked about this, uh, talking of small restaurants, Uh, Izakaya's are also some of the great places that you often recommend. And I think we were talking on Twitter how even though they are doing takeout, they're really struggling right now because a lot of the way that they make their ends meet and their margins are so small is from drinks. Mm. And a lot of people might be doing takeout but they're not really ordering drinks. They're not staying as long, getting extra appetizers. So the whole model of making ends meet for izakayas or small eateries is really different right mm-hmm. now, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think it's extremely difficult for someone these, um for some of these restaurants who are, are trying to do takeout to sort of like take the edge off of the, you know, of the intense damage that they're, that they're getting like the, of the, the financial um, damage that they like you know weathering but um but even still it doesn't it they are not making any profits when when they're doing takeout you know for most restaurants um if they're not allowed to serve alcohol then you know that's like 30 percent of their revenue gone yeah
0: um you introduced a couple really interesting ones like shirosaka um, you introduced as a, a great place to have kaiseki, but it's not fussy. It's it's a nice, mm-hmm. friendly place, and there's a view of the nice garden. It looks like somewhere... Yeah, it has a know.
1: really tiny garden, but it's adorable.
0: <laughs> and it's uh, that whole idea of making kaiseki accessible, I think, to people mm-hmm. where it's not so formal. That's It's really mm-hmm. nice to see that. Of course, places like that, it's hard to have the same appreciation of the food when it's just takeout. Um, So we're really hoping places like this that can survive, right?
1: Yeah. um, So I haven't really, I haven't really had a chance to visit a lot of places um, to get takeout from like these kind of higher end places. So I'm not sure how they're really approaching it, like what kind of, um, what kind of food they're preparing for these things. I know that, Shirasaka had been doing takeout for a while but i can't say for sure what they're doing now but yes like 100 percent like when 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 restaurants are doing takeout they're like not able to yeah they're not able to really profit from that yeah it might be helping them stay afloat but it's not like it's not really you know generating a lot of profits
0: yeah uh, really interesting article you did on sustainable seafood, which of course is very connected to sushi and a lot of traditional Japanese restaurants. Um, you did a great article about sustainable seafood in Japan, uh, started with Chefs for the Blue. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Chefs for the Blue is an organization that. Um, has been trying to raise awareness um, about, like, like seafood sustainability issues in Japan. Um, and it started as a group of chefs and um, a journalist who really were just, like, you know, trying to learn more themselves and, like, trying to figure out how they could um, spread the word. And, like, now the organization has grown and they've done a lot of, like, uh, really great initiatives. Um, one of the, I think the re- the article you're referring to is the opening of a restaurant called Sincere Blue in Tokyo, um, that's in the Harajuku area, where the chef is, um, he has made a commitment to use um, only sustainable fish. So like um, fish that's a, that's been certified by the MSC and the ASC, these like organizations that um, that give data on like you know how um the seafood populations are doing or and like or if they're farmed then like you know that they, to make sure that they're farmed under sustainable conditions um and I believe it's doing really well
0: that's great, it's great to hear uh in your article, you interviewed the uh, one of the is it Sasaki San, who's the head
1: yeah, and, yes, and he Hiroko Sasaki.
0: And he was saying today, the self-sufficiency ratio for seafood in Japan is only about 55%. In the seventies, it was a hundred percent. And I want to see Mm -hmm. that come back to the level in my lifetime. Some species can recover in as quickly as 10 years if we set proper limits, Sasaki-san says So that's wonderful to have someone who's so knowledgeable about what used to be in japan and how we should really be aiming to go back for that and i think in terms of making a more sustainable brand for japan as a tourism destination this has a lot of appeal because sustainable seafood initiatives are happening all over the world so japan really needs to have this presence in this conversation about the
1: future of the fishing industry, right? Oh my god! Of course, because like Japan is well. Um, first of all, like the sea, like the the food culture, um, seafood has been is one of the cornerstones of the food culture in Japan. Like uh, seafood is like Japan is practically synonymous with um, the idea of seafood, and they um, as a country, Japan is still one of the like largest like fishers. Um, in the world. And um, certainly in terms of consumption, Japan is like one of the world's top consumers of seafood. And so um, it's extremely important to spread awareness about this, um, first of all, within Japan, because ironically, a lot of Japanese people have not been aware of this situation until fairly recently, fairly recently. That's why I think that Chefs River Blue is so important, so vital, because they have been really making a lot of headway to change people's minds, or not change people's minds as much as even just make them be aware that this is a problem. Um, so many people, when you talk to them and you you explain that that most of the fish that you see in the supermarket doesn't even come from Japan, um, that surprises a lot of people. Um, and you know why should this be the case? I guess it's because Japan has always had like this um, this idea of its culture being like, you know, so intertwined with the sea that they've kind of taken it for granted. And also the media had not really been covering it until recently, but, um, but most certainly um, Japan has an important place an important role to play in the sustainability conversation because of its prominence as a consumer and as a producer. Um, It's like Japan could really lead the way if, you know, if things change in the right direction, could be an inspiration for other other countries as well.
0: Definitely. Um, I talked a little bit about sustainable seafood when I talked to Jess Hollams in the series. Mm-hmm. She's a travel uh, promoter in the Tohoku area for travel, mm-hmm. inbound travel. Can you believe Tohoku area has l- the lowest numbers of visitors? I mean, it's such an amazing area and they're really trying to develop their sustainable tourism brand. And part of that is to develop sustainable fishing industries. So the oyster industry, they don't use plastics like a lot of the other oyster industry around Japan does. Um, The fishing industry, they're really trying to offer sustainable products and a sustainable mindset. I think it's a great way to stand out and to show more destination appeal. So really nice to hear Mm -hmm. about those initiatives.
1: Yeah, for sure. I would love to see more of those initiatives take off as well. Tohoku is such as you as you know um, a, a beautiful region, rich in resources, and it has a fascinating culture. Um, and it is it is a shame that uh, that it's still so under that it's still so underappreciated, undervisited by a lot of people. But I mean, there are a lot of difficulties up there as well in terms of like creating the industry. Um, Infrastructure-wise, particularly. Oh, you're frozen.
0: You we froze for a second. Are you? Can you see me now? Oh, I can are you see okay? you now. Yeah. yeah sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, that's um, fine.
1: But uh, are you? there? Yep. Oh no, you froze again.
0: Frozen. <laughs> uh, are you? Can um, you
1: hear am me? Am I? Am I live now? Now yeah, you're okay. I can hear yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. No, but I was just saying that, like, um, that I would love to see more being developed um, in a sustainable way in Tohoku. But there are, like, a lot of options. Yeah.
0: There's a, a lot of opportunities. We were talking with uh, James Clark the other day. He's based in the UK. He's a travel writer. He's planning to come to Tohoku. Of course, was planning to come this year. Uh, he might have to adjust his plans, but he's going to do the MCT, the Michinoku Coastal Trail, and do a documentary and write a book. So I think there's, because oh. this is the time. Oh, sorry. Year, hey. sure. Frozen. Are you Okay. You okay? Now? Yeah. So yeah. I
1: missed a lot of what you said.
0: Ah, uh, that's okay. So uh, uh, James Clark is a travel writer. He was in the series last week, uh, talking about walking the Michinoku Coastal Trail and writing a book, doing a documentary about the Tohoku area and its beauty. All that beauty along the coast. So I'm really looking forward to that. That'll be great. Um, You also, speaking of plastics in the ocean, you also took part in the Fujisawa cleanup that uh, Alana Bonzi does in Fujisawa, right? That was years ago. Yeah, uh,
1: it was years ago, but it was such a nice program. Yeah, definitely.
0: And I think Alana did it right. We do uh, monthly cleanups here in Hiroshima as well, and we do find a lot of plastics Uh, Not only from people who, you know, buy things, products that end up in the water, but also from the fishing industry. So it's so great to see um, that there is more kind of activism and more understanding and awareness about how a lot of plastics do end up in the sea. Because, of course, this is also connected to restaurants in Japan and to the products from the sea in Japan. So we need to... All see the connections to it. Um, it also looked like Alana did a great job with this Fujisawa cleanup, because after the cleanup, you guys were treated to like wine and delicious foods, as well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such a good. It was such a good initiative, and um, and you know, because that was so long ago too. I thought it was great because she really started to introduce this topic. Um, you know. Like, this was like more than 10 years ago, I guess. Like, you know, before people really were talking about it. So, um, you know, hats off to Alana. Yeah,
0: she's she's been doing a great job. And I don't know if they're doing it recently, similar to us. Uh, we've kind of had to put things on hold because of coronavirus, not really trying to get people together. Um, but because we're outside and maybe we can social distance, hopefully we can start doing beach cleanups again um, of course, it's an overwhelming problem, but just getting out and cleaning up a little bit, it kind of changes the way that you shop next time. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Did you find that? Yeah, as I well? think that that's actually. Yeah, I think that that's really the point um, to get people thinking more about it and to thinking about like what other kind of choices they can make and in terms of like what businesses they can that they want to support. Um, so it's not like Picking up, uh, you know, picking up plastic for one day on the beach is going to make a huge difference in terms of the overall effect of the plastics, um, you know, in the in the ocean. Um, but it's about like how it changes you and your mindset. Definitely.
0: Um, I find even though I I try to live my life in a very sustainable way and to the annoyance of everyone around me, even for me, after volunteering for a day, I'm like, do I really need that? Or, you know, like maybe I won't buy pet bottles anymore. So it it does, it really makes you think about how you're consuming and uh, putting pressure on companies that you see a lot of their plastics in the water and you think, well... Maybe I won't buy from them anymore, you know, so I I would love to see it more with uh, like kids in schools getting out and doing cleanups just so they understand the effect of what they buy or what products they support. Right. It's all connected.
1: Yeah, for sure. It is all connected. Um, So I think like there are some really exciting initiatives being started by chefs these days that are trying to not only raise awareness of of the issue, but like um, really change the way they do things in the kitchen so that they are, um, reduce plastic usage and thus reduce plastic waste. Um, like, well, the first person that comes to mind who's really doing this is actually a chef in Hong Kong named Richard Ekebus, um, whose uh, Michelin-starred restaurant is called Amber. Um, but uh, even in Japan, people are starting to have more awareness of this too. The other day, I I spoke with um, chef uh, the chef of the Michelin starred restaurant Ode in Tokyo, um, Yusuke Namai, and he is really it's he's he just opened a new small cafe next to his restaurant, and the cafe's name is BGM. Um, it's a super, super tiny, super, super casual place, but, like, he is taking this not zero-waste, exactly, approach, but he's trying to go as close to a zero-waste approach in the kitchen as possible. So, um, a lot of, like, things, uh, vegetable scraps and uh, peels from the Michelin-starred restaurant and um, treating them by, like, for example, making ferments um, and, uh, then turning those things as pickles and things like that into, um, different kinds of food that can be served at the cafe. For example, vegan curries, they're really delicious and tasty. Um, but like they're using like all these like wonderful, like, re- like, uh, vegetables that he gets from small producers, but also like incorporating these like elements that they couldn't use at the Michelin star restaurant because of like the shape or whatever, um, into these dishes, and also like making things like cannoli, like you know these great little pastries that that also incorporate some of these um, these leftover fruits and vegetables. And then for the waste that they, sorry, it's then for the scraps that they can't, that they really can't do anything with, they have um, a machine that um, doesn't turn the waste into compost, but like um, treats the food scraps. So that, like, uh, they they become like harmless, uh, sort of, um, they become like a harmless substance that can be washed away. And he um, mentioned that he wants to start uh, taking action um, to reduce the plastics in his kitchen as well, which is just, I think, great news.
0: That's awesome. The whole concept of using all the foods, not having too much food waste is so important. It's so great to hear that there are um, restaurants and chefs who are thinking about that in Japan. That's wonderful. You grew up up in a restaurant family, right? So you feel very connected to the whole restaurant scene, I think, a bit more. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I grew up in a restaurant. My my dad ran a restaurant for maybe more than 40 years or something like that. So I never had a babysitter. It was just um, the restaurant. And like even from the time I was quite young, I had to go greet customers and things like that <laughs> and work in the restaurant, of course.
0: So you deeply, even in your childhood, really understood the hospitality industry on a on a bit deeper level than most kids right
1: yeah yeah i had like i had personal um experience with the with the hospitality world from a young age
0: um your parents must be proud that you're you're helping so many businesses in the restaurant industry in japan
1: oh well yeah i mean um my father had always hoped that i would you know take over the restaurant one day but you know having seen having seen the industry from the insides like that I realized that it was not for me but um but I am working adjacent to the industry and like you said um I do care a lot about um about hospitality and the people who work in it yeah wonderful
0: Um, To talk about travel a little bit, I love reading your travel articles as well. You introduce little back areas of Tokyo that I would love to explore. For example, the Oedo Antique Market or Mm -hmm. Shimokitazawa's Secondhand Stores. Can you tell us a few of your favorites?
1: Um, Geez. Well, so uh, recently I've been really interested in places like monzen nakacho um that are like in the eastern part of tokyo you know like a a kind of traditionally working class area that is really old um but still has a lot of flavor and um and it's it's interesting to see how things have changed a lot in this area because um it's it's very very much associated with traditional industries like um, pickle makers and, uh, you know, like, uh, wagashi, that kind of thing. But um, in recent years, there are, like, some very cool cafes. There are some cool little restaurants that are just, like, very tiny but um, doing interesting things. Like, I went to a place that um, is, serving, is serving, like, all sake with, like, French bistro food. Um, but, like, but the food itself is also, like, you know, has some interesting twists. Um, and there's a fantastic sake shop up that way that like um, has a, a small counter where you can taste all the sake um, that they sell in the shop.
0: How do you see um, changes happening during coronavirus? kind of are places serving more outside? Um, Like, that that rule has changed in Japan recently, so cafes can have uh, people sitting outside drinking and eating. Um, More outdoor events would be possible, maybe as we social distance. Are you seeing kind of any trends in the food and drink industry around Mm -hmm. Tokyo?
1: Yeah, um, of course, like, the biggest trend has been um, how many people have pivoted to takeout and delivery. Um, and it's a funny thing because, you know, I would not say that that was the norm for restaurants um, in Tokyo prior to the pandemic. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, um, but now when you walk down the street, um, especially at lunchtime, pretty much anywhere, you will see people offering takeout, like, or they've made like some kind of like bentos that are even just like they're selling it on the street. Um, um, even if they are also doing indoor dining. Um, so that has been like the most noticeable change as far as like outdoor dining is concerned. I mean, you know, we did hear about like some of the changes that were supposed to allow restaurants to take, more, take over more public space. But in reality, I haven't seen so much of it happen in Tokyo. Um, The weird thing about Tokyo is that, like, uh, even though we're under state of emergency again, things don't really look that different. Things don't really seem, like, that different. Um, People are still going to places and dining indoors. But, you know, um, just the shifting of the hours, the uh, operation hours, and, like, maybe some restaurants are limiting capacity. But... We haven't seen, like, I mean, in a a lot of ways, it still kind of feels the same.
0: What is in the future for you, or do you have any aims for this year? I read in one of your interviews, um, you're planning to do, like, a newsletter, more writing for, like, a smaller group. Are you still planning that?
1: Well, um, yes, I... I think so. <laughs> so I mean, you know how like um, how in psychology they always encourage you to use these commitment devices. Like, for example, if you have an, a if you have a goal, then you should just like announce it and then like that'll hold you to it. Um, so I announced that I was going to start this newsletter some months ago now, like maybe three months ago. And I got a lot of sign up, but I haven't had any time to even like make the first post. Um, <laughs> because I just got really busy, uh, like, yeah, starting in October, I've just been really slammed. So uh, I do want to, I do want to have, I want to have an outlet where I can really write more of what I want to write. Um, and so that's why the newsletter is appealing to me, or the idea of the newsletter is appealing to me. But um, I just, yeah, haven't had a chance to, to work on it. And um, another thing that I wanted to do in tandem with the with the newsletter is actually a writing workshop for people who would be interested in, in writing um, reported essays, for example. Um, and I even developed a whole curriculum for it, but again, like it's just a matter of, like having the time to do it. So, um, you know, hopefully I will be able to get that stuff off the ground, but um, at this moment, um, I can't, I don't have a, a set date for a launch.
0: Um, that's great, though, that you're you're busy. Do you find your work comes in like ups and downs, or is pretty constant stream of articles that that you collaborate with different um, news newspapers or magazines on? Is it pretty constant or kind of up and down?
1: Well, um because I'm a freelance writer, it's definitely I would say it's definitely cycles. Um, but uh, yeah, thankfully, I have been really busy. Of course, like at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a really different story because as I mentioned, you know, so much of my time was spent traveling, um, traveling around the world and like, you know, that completely stopped. And then at the same time, the media industry cut so much of their budget for freelancers or, or, or just like, you know, stopped publishing, um, top publishing articles about related to travel or related to food and drink overseas um so there were a couple of months that were like really really quiet for me but um but again you know thankfully since then um that hasn't been an issue but it is certainly a problem for every freelancer and any any freelance writer will like agree
0: I think especially um, as a lot of the tourism focus is now kind of on pause everywhere, not just in Japan, everywhere around the world. So a lot of freelance writers who often write things connected to travel, like you, the food and drink industry. Um, that's great that you've been busy still. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I saw one of your posts uh, end of 2020 talking about being thankful that you're in Tokyo and all the support that you've had from other people. So that was that was really great to see. And I, I hope that um I
1: keeps can hear you you that I, I missed it. Uh at the I, end I'm of,
0: sorry. that's okay. At the end of twenty twenty you did a post on Instagram talking about how thankful you were for all the support that you've gotten and you feel really happy um in your life in Tokyo, how it's safe to walk the streets as a woman, um, you still feel pretty happy being in Tokyo, being based there?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, Tokyo is, is such a great city and I really love it. I, if I didn't like it, I don't think I could have stayed for so long, but um, but yeah, it's, it's like an endlessly fascinating place. Like I just, um, I love that there's always so much to discover even in your own neighborhood because because of the way that the city is structured, it's, it's kind of medieval, and, like, it, and like, it can be frustrating when you're trying to get someplace, because you're always going to get lost. But it also, on the other hand, is really great because it, it's just ripe for serendipity all the time.
0: Right. Uh, one, one of your articles recently we haven't talked about yet is Jin. Is there a bit of a Jin revolution going on in Japan?
1: There's, I see gin made in Japan. A few places now. Oh yeah, I mean, gin has taken off. Um, in, craft gin in Japan has taken off like in a pretty serious way in the past few years, and um, and now like even people overseas are starting to get interested in Japanese gin. But we like there are some fantastic producers. Um, I think that I've written a couple times about the Kyoto Distillery. And their flagship brand is Kinobi. Um, they're still one of my favorite gins.
0: Uh, we also have a gin made in Hiroshima, which I hope you'll be able to try sometime.
1: <laughs> which one is it?
0: Um, I'm not sure what the name is, but it's, it's a Hiroshima-made gin. What's it called?
1: Sakura. Sakurao. I have yeah. sake in my freezer right now.
0: Oh, you do! Oh, wow! Great. <laughs> yeah. I've heard I've heard good things about it. Yeah, and a lot of yeah, it's of, really
1: good for making vespers. <laughs> oh, good!
0: A lot of the international travelers um, before the coronavirus were really excited about Hiroshima gin. Jin has had a bit of a boom abroad, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like overseas, like the gen, the craft gin boom has been going on for quite some time.
0: Yeah, great. Um, is there any article you're working on now that you could give us a little preview of or a little hint, um, something to watch out for?
1: Yeah, so my, you mentioned my column um, earlier, Compai Culture. Um, it's coming out on Sunday and um, this time I'm talking about um a new izakaya izakaya bar um called sg low that is um produced by the same group that um, has a lot of award-winning bars um here in Tokyo and in Japan and in Shanghai um, it's uh yeah really fun exciting new concept from from a great group of bartenders
0: that's great and I, I also noticed you had another article about another uh, toji in Yamaguchi who's making organic sake. Um, so it's it's nice to see that there is more kind of a sustainable focus. Um, and you often promote women in the industry. You often promote organic or sustainable. So I really appreciate all your articles. I think it's it's wonderful to have these sustainable issues in the highlight, in the focus sometimes, because it's so often it it doesn't get enough attention and it it needs to have a discussion about why this is necessary or important or possible even. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, thank you so much for reading. And, um, and yeah, I have always been very much focused on, um, on sustainability in the food industry at all levels, like, you know, um, like from the producers to fine dining restaurants. And, um, you know, I'm I'm glad that things are going in that direction a lot more and more these days um, in general, but like um, one of the issues now that I'm starting to become more interested in from a sustainability standpoint is actually the financial sustainability of a business. So um, as you know, Restaurants are notoriously um, difficult, like industries to actually make money at. And so uh, like with the pandemic um, bringing like, you know, laying bare some of the inherent um, problems with the restaurant industry, I'm more and more concerned with like how restaurants are going to actually be able to survive in a in a basic way for like, you know, all of their employees. So financial sustainability is part of sustainability as well.
0: Absolutely. It has to be a part of it. It won't survive if you don't make enough income. And I think this is right. something you've you've talked about a lot in your writing is the super narrow margins of the sake mm-hmm. industry or the restaurant trade. So I hope um, consumers realize that. And it's not just about the low price point and it's about the value of protecting this artisanship or this part of culture that we want to see around for the next hundred years right um -hmm. and things are going to cost a little bit more but that's important to make sure that these artisans these trades can continue right it's it's kind of a mindset shift
1: absolutely i think that um it's a It's a necessary mindset shift that um, we need to think about the people in the industry in terms of, um, you know, the importance of their livelihoods, and not just about like you know the um, the products and the pleasures that we can extract from them. So um, this is a this is a big it's this is like a you know a really huge problem that like has so many um, gnarly roots and. and it's going to take a long time to really shift the needle. But at the same time, um, it's extremely important to think about it these days going forward.
0: And thank you for raising those discussions and and highlighting those issues. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for joining today. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you everybody for joining and we had a a few comments, not so many, but feel free to comment below. Uh, We'll try to add some links to the topics and the industries that we talked about and of course many of Melinda's wonderful articles I will link below. Uh, Tomorrow we're talking with Daniel Moore about active travel in Japan and his passion for pickleball, if you know what that is. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks, Melinda.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye.